0: section six of the book of ghosts this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by carolyn the book of ghosts by sabine bearing gold section six the Leaden ring part two When Julia came to her senses, she was in bed attended by the housekeeper and her maid. A few moments later, Miss Fleming arrived. Oh, aunt, I have heard it again. Heard what, dear? The discharge of a gun. It is nothing but wax, said the old lady. I will drop a little sweet oil into your ear, and then have it syringed with warm water i want to tell you something in private miss fleming signed to the servants to withdraw and said the girl i must say something this is the second time that this has happened i'm sure it is significant james lawler was with me in the sunken garden as he began to speak about james Hattersley." you know that it was when we were talking about him last night that i heard that awful noise it was precisely as if a gun had been discharged into my ear i felt as if all the nerves and tissues of my head were being torn and all the bones of my skull shattered just what mr hattersley must have undergone when he pulled the trigger it was an agony for a moment perhaps "'but it felt as if it lasted an hour. "'Mr. Lawler had asked me point-blank "'if James Hattersley had proposed to me, "'and I said no. "'I was perfectly justified in so answering, "'because he had no right to ask me such a question. "'It was an impertinence on his part, "'and I answered him shortly and sharply with a negative. "'But actually, James Hattersley proposed twice to me.' he would not accept the first refusal, but came next day bothering me again, and I was pretty curt with him. He made some remarks that were rude about how I had treated him, and which I will not repeat, and as he left in a state of great agitation, he said, "'Julia, I vow that you shall not forget this, and you shall belong to no one but me, alive or dead.' I considered this great nonsense, and did not accord it another thought. But really, these terrible annoyances, this wind and the bursts of noise, do seem to me to come from him. It is just as though he felt a malignant delight in distressing me, now that he is dead. I should like to defy him, and I will do it if I can, but I cannot bear more of these experiences." They will kill me. Several days elapsed. Mr. Lawler called repeatedly to inquire, but a week passed before Julia was sufficiently recovered to receive him, and then the visit was one of courtesy and of sympathy, and the conversation turned upon her health and on indifferent themes. But some few days later it was otherwise. She was in the conservatory alone, pretty much herself again, when Mr. Lawler was announced. Physically she had recovered, or believed that she had, but her nerves had actually received a severe shock. She had made up her mind that the phenomena of the circling wind and the explosion were in some mysterious manner connected with Hattersley. She bitterly resented this, but she was in mortal terror of a recurrence, and she felt no compunction of her treatment of the unfortunate young man but rather a sense of deep resentment against him if he were dead why did he not lie quiet and cease from vexing her to be a martyr was to her no gratification for hers was not a martyrdom that provoked sympathy and which could make her interesting she had hitherto supposed that when a man died There was an end of him. His condition was determined for good or for ill, but that a disembodied spirit should hover about and make itself a nuisance to the living had never entered into her calculations. "'Julia, if I may be allowed to call you so,' began Mr. Lawler, "'I have brought you a bouquet of flowers. Will you accept them?' "'Oh,' she said, "'as he handed the bunch to her. "'How kind of you! "'At this time of the year they are so rare, "'and Anne's gardener is so miserly "'that he will spare me none for my room "'but some miserable bits of geranium. "'It is too bad of you wasting your money like this upon me.' "'It is no waste if it affords you pleasure.' "'It is a pleasure. "'I dearly love flowers.' "'To give you pleasure,' said Mr. Lawler, "'is the great object of my life. If I could assure you happiness, if you would allow me to hope, to seize this opportunity, now that we are alone together—' He drew near and caught her hand. His features were agitated, his lips trembled. There was earnestness in his eyes. At once a cold blast touched Julia and began to circle about her and to flutter her hair. She trembled and drew back. That paralyzing experience was about to be renewed. She turned deadly white and put her hand to her right ear. "'Oh, James, James!' she gasped. "'Do not, pray do not speak what you want to say, or I shall faint. It is coming on. I am not yet well enough to hear it write to me and i will answer for pity's sake do not speak it then she sank upon a seat and at that moment her aunt entered the conservatory on the following day a note was put into her hand containing a formal proposal from the honourable james lawler and by return of post julia answered with an acceptance there was no reason whatever why the engagement should be long and the only alternative mooted was whether the wedding should take place before lent or after easter finally it was settled that it should be celebrated on shrove tuesday this left a short time for the necessary preparations miss fleming would have to go to town with her niece concerning a trousseau and a trousseau is not turned out rapidly any more than an armed cruiser There is usually a certain period allowed to young people who have become engaged to see much of each other, to get better acquainted with one another, to build their castles in the air, and to indulge in little passages of affection, vulgarly called spooning. But in this case the spooning had to be curtailed and postponed. At the outset, when alone with James, Julia was nervous— she feared a recurrence of those phenomena that so affected her. But although every now and then the wind curled and soughed about her, it was not violent, nor was it chilling, and she came to regard it as a wail of discomfiture. Moreover, there was no recurrence of the detonation, and she fondly hoped that with her marriage the vexation would completely cease in her heart was deep down a sense of exultation. She was defying James Hattersley, and setting his prediction at naught. She was not in love with Mr. Lawler. She liked him, in her cold manner, and was not insensible to the social advantage that would be hers when she became the Honourable Mrs. Lawler. The day of the wedding arrived. Happily it was fine. "'Blessed is the bride the sun shines on,' said the cheery Miss Fleming. "'An omen, I trust, of a bright and unruffled life in your new condition.' All the neighborhood was present at the church. Miss Fleming had many friends. Mr. Lawler had fewer present, as he belonged to a distant county. The church-path had been laid with red cloth, the church decorated with flowers, and a choir was present to twitter the voice that breathed o'er Eden. The rector stood by the altar, and two cushions had been laid at the chancel step. The rector was to be assisted by an uncle of the bridegroom, who was in holy orders. The rector, being old-fashioned, had drawn on pale grey kid gloves first arrived the bridegroom with his best man and stood in a nervous condition balancing himself first on one foot then on the other waiting observed by all eyes next entered the procession of the bride attended by her maids to the wedding march in lohengrin on a wheezy organ then julia and her intended took their places at the chancel step for the performance of the first portion of the ceremony, and the two clergy descended to them from the altar. Will you have this woman to be thy wedded wife? I will. Wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband? I will. I, James, take thee, Julia, to my wedded wife, to have and to hold and so on. As the words were being spoken, a cold rush of air passed over the clasped hands, numbing them, and began to creep around the bride, and to flutter her veil. She set her lips and knitted her brows. In a few minutes she would be beyond the reach of these manifestations. When it came to her turn to speak, she began firmly, "'I, Julia,' take thee james but as she proceeded the wind became fierce it ragged about her it caught her veil on one side and buffeted her cheek it switched the veil about her throat as though strangling her with a drift of snow contracting into ice but she persevered to the end then james Lawlor produced the ring and was about to place it on her finger with the prescribed words with this ring i thee wed when a report rang in her ear followed by a heaving of her skull as though the bones were being burst asunder and she sank unconscious on the chancel step in the midst of profound commotion she was raised and conveyed to the vestry followed by james lawler trembling and pale he had slipped the ring back into his waistcoat pocket dr Crate, who was present hastened to offer his professional assistance in the vestry julia rested in a glastonbury chair white and still with her hands resting in her lap and to the amazement of those present it was seen that on the third finger of her left hand was a leaden ring rude and solid as though fashioned out of a bullet restoratives were applied but full a quarter of an hour elapsed before julia opened her eyes and a little color returned to her lips and cheek but as she raised her hands to her brow to wipe away the damps that had formed on it her eye caught sight of the leaden ring and with a cry of horror she sank again into insensibility the congregation slowly left the church awestruck whispering, asking questions, receiving no satisfactory answers, forming surmises all incorrect. "'I am very much afraid, Mr. Lawler,' said the rector, "'that it will be impossible to proceed with the service to-day. It must be postponed till Mr. Mant is in a condition to conclude her part and to sign the register. I do not see how it can be gone on with to-day.' she is quite unequal to the effort. The carriage which was to have conveyed the couple to Miss Fleming's house, and then later to have taken them to the station for their honeymoon, the horses decorated with white rosettes, the whip adorned with a white bough, had now to convey Julia, hardly conscious, supported by her aunt, to her home. No rice could be thrown the bell-ringers prepared to give a joyous peal were constrained to depart the reception at miss fleming's was postponed no one thought of attending the cakes the ices were consumed in the kitchen the bridegroom bewildered almost frantic ran hither and thither not knowing what to do what to say julia lay as a stone for fully two hours and when she came to herself could not speak. When conscious, she raised her left hand, looked on the leaden ring, and sank back again into senselessness. Not till late in the evening was she sufficiently recovered to speak, and then she begged her aunt, who had remained by her bed without stirring, to dismiss the attendants. She desired to speak with her alone when no one was in the room with her save miss fleming she said in a whisper oh aunt elizabeth oh auntie such an awful thing has happened i can never marry mr lawler never i have married james hattersley i am a dead man's wife at the time that james lawler was making the responses i heard a piping voice in my ear an unearthly voice, saying the same words. When I said, I, Julia, take you, James, to my wedded husband, you know, Mr. Hattersley is James as well as Mr. Lawler, then the words applied to him as much or as well as to the other. And then, when it came for the giving of the ring, there was the explosion in my ear as before, and the leaden ring was forced on to my finger, and not James Lawler's golden ring. It is of no use my resisting any more. I am a dead man's wife, and I cannot marry James Lawler. Some years have elapsed since that disastrous day and that incomplete marriage. Mr. Mantis, Mr. Mantis still. And she has never been able to remove the leaden ring from her third finger of her left hand. Whenever the attempt has been made, either to disengage it by drawing it off or by cutting through it, there has ensued that terrifying discharge as of a gun into her ear, causing insensibility. The prostration that has followed, the terror it has inspired, have so affected her nerves that she has desisted from every attempt to rid herself of the ring. She invariably wears a glove on her left hand, and it is bulged over the third finger, where lies that leaden ring. She is not a happy woman, although her aunt is dead and has left her a handsome estate. She has not got many acquaintances. She has no friends, for her temper is unamiable, and her tongue is bitter. She supposes that the world, as far as she knows it, is in league against her. Towards the memory of James Hattersley she entertains a deadly hate. If an incantation could lay his spirit, if prayer could give him repose, she would have recourse to none of these expedients, even though they might relieve her, so bitter is her resentment. And she harbours a silent wrath against Providence for allowing the dead to walk and to molest the living, End of Section Six.